You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hi, this is Dirk Novell. Uh, welcome to my podcast. On with me today is Hummy Man. Hummy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dirk. Nice to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Now, Hummy is a composer for movie scores, and he also teaches. And just a little backdrop uh, on Hummy. I've actually never physically met him, but years ago, I got an email, and I don't know how I got on the uh, list, but it was about a school uh, for learning how to write movie scores. And I was very interested. But the problem was I didn't know how to read music and it probably was a disqualifier. But uh, the thing about Hami is like this is a this is one of those things that if I could do anything, I think it would be to be in this kind of world. I, I'm fascinated by music um, scores specifically, and I can spend hours sitting outside by the fire just listening to music. It, it moves me in ways um, that very few things do. So I'm really excited, Hami, to have you on. Um, I, I, I guess maybe what I'll do is just throw it back at you and people are coming in to learn a little bit about what you do. Maybe in your own words, if you're sitting on a plane and someone says, Hey, Hami, what is it you do? Maybe you could uh, give the audience a little color. Sure. I, I, I had, um, multiple careers in my life, which have been great. Um, for about 24 years, I lived in Los Angeles and I was working on uh, scores for television and film, starting off as a uh, as an orchestrator for other composers, conducting for other composers, orchestrating for other composers, uh, eventually doing some uh, what we used to call ghostwriting. Now is called assistant composing, and uh, ultimately becoming you know getting work under my own banner, so to speak. Um, probably best known for my work with uh, Mel Brooks, I scored Robin Hood Men in Tights and Dracula Dead and Loving It uh, for some of the younger people. I scored Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Um, I've won two Emmy Awards for my work over the years. And uh, last year was nominated for a uh, Critics' Choice Award for the best uh, documentary score for a film that I scored called The Automat. So I've been involved in the creative process of creating music for television and film for a long time. And uh, currently, I am also now a professor and I teach film scoring at a program that I created, the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program, which is the music department of the Seattle Film Institute. And uh, we're now entering our 13th year or 14th year of uh, um, giving uh, master's degrees to students who want to study the art and craft of film composition. Thank you for that introduction. So I'm, some of my questions are going to be kind of elementary and dumb, but forgive me. I'm just kind of curious. Question. But uh, one one just kind of curious is, do you have a favorite composer? I mean, or a few? I'm just kind of curious if you have your own kind of style and niche, or did you are you attracted to someone you know that you looked up to in the past, or do you just kind of do it your own way? No, I think that the, you know I certainly grew up listening to film music and you know had have have my heroes, which. I've been very fortunate uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, I had a lot of opportunity of actually interacting and meeting some of these people. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith being one of them, who was a hero of mine and uh, who uh, I actually got to work with uh, once or twice. Um, so 
But one of the things that, that's interesting that you mentioned is the idea of in film composition, film composers really need to be chameleons because you're not really finding your voice, you're finding the voice of the film. And so you listen to things like John Williams, who did you know uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then he also did Catch Me If You Can, which is a completely different kind of score or uh, Accidental Tourist. You know, film composers have to bring have to look at the film and decide what is the right attitude, the right genre, the right way of approaching that film. And, uh, you know, most film composers like to do a lot of different things. I've, I've been very fortunate to do, uh, I did a film called the uh, year of the comet, which was a Celtic score. I did a film called Dracula dead and loving it, which was a Gothic dark score. Uh, Robin Hood was kind of a medieval, you know, night score. Um, you know, Thomas and Magic Railroad was a you know was a children's film, and so that was a whole different kind of way, attitude. And I've done a lot of different types of genre of scores, and I really enjoy doing that. In fact, I probably prefer that than doing the same kind of score over and over again. It's I, I like to explore new venues and new sounds and new instrumentation. And, and you know, to me, when when I'm teaching film scoring, I really talk about the idea of like you know, finding the voice of this, of the movie. That's really what your job is. So this is interesting. I never thought of it like that. So I would think my assumption is you had your style and then someone says, Hey, this is a great movie for Hummy. But what you're kind of saying is you can switch gears and play on both fields. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a dark Gothic comedy or a romance or whatever is the skill set typical like composers can kind of go from here to here to here or do most composers kind of just stay in their lane uh, that uh, everybody's different some people specialize in in one specific genre and style and some people uh, i mean like year of the comet i'd never written a celtic score or celtic music before in my life so but it's uh, the skill set is having the ability to go and listen to music of a certain genre and figure out what's going on. What is what is it that gives it its characteristic sound? It's the instrumentation, the harmonic language, the uh, you know, the, all of that can be kind of mimicked. So even though you're the comic, I'm not a Celtic composer, has a very strong Celtic flavor, and uh, you know, so it, so the idea is you know being having the skill set to be able to do that. But again, some composers. You know, view it another way. They view it as, uh, you know, you want me, so you want my sound. Uh, I mean, I think that the the the, the actors and actresses, the work, you know, the, if you think about, uh, you know, actresses or actors that that take on the different characteristics of different characters, that's exactly the same thing that a film composer should should assign. At least that's my feeling. You know, I think of like, you know, Jerry did Chinatown and he did Basic Instinct and he did, you know, Star Trek. And those are completely different kinds of scores. And so it's the capability of being able to write in a lot of genres and understand those genres or, or be able to have the skills to understand those genres, even if it's not something you have in your back pocket. Yeah. And did Jerry do Rudy? Yes. Yeah, I love that soundtrack. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. My fa- I mean, I, I know I'm going to butcher the name, I, but I, I love Ennio. Um, is it Mara? So Cinema Paradiso is, uh, I mean, I could listen to that all night long. I mean, it just gets me. And um, I think years ago, that was one of the movies that like really started me thinking about this this as a potential side hustle or just a passion but um, yeah. he's some... you should mention that film because that film, yeah. in my opinion, is one of the strongest 
melodic film scores, you know, ever written. I mean, he's just a fabulous melodist. And it's something that we have unfortunately gotten away from. And, you know, so there's a lot of scoring these days that's more ambient, percussive, in some ways, you know, less less identifiable. And, you know, they can work, you can write great film scores that work with the film, but that are not necessarily great music. And to me, you know, people like Ennio, Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, you know, how many John Williams themes can you think of? You probably could think of like 20 just off the top of your head because he's such, he's so strong and melodic and thematic composer. Whereas there's, you know, there are other composers who don't have that same skill set. Well, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think I gravitate towards, you know, the mission, you know, Robert De Niro, the scene. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, so I, I have a lot of questions and I'm thinking about how do I prioritize, you know, prioritize these when you are being introduced, like, I don't know what that dating process is like, you know, if it's a phone call and it's like, Hey, Hami, would you like to audition or, or is, Hey, we want you to do this film or is it, is it just making sure you're on the same page? Do you, are you having to work with a producer or a director who typically are the titles that you have to interact with to get a deal? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all over the map on some level. Um, you know, there some some younger composers will do demos to suggest that this is this is an approach that I would go with. I've I don't do that. Um, I'm pretty much hired based upon my reputation uh, or people that I've already worked with. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, my career has kind of slowed down a bit since I no longer live in Los Angeles. Um, but you know, I did a I did a documentary feature last year that uh, got nominated for a Critics' Choice Award. So, you know, I mean, I'm happy to do work when it's there. The industry has changed a lot since I started. And one of the things that I was very fortunate to get to do is to work with a lot of large orchestras. So I scored a lot of films that I had 80, 90, 100 musicians. Um, a, you know, a lot of lower budget films now are going fully electronic, which is a fine way to do it. I just don't, you know, that's not my strength, my strong point. I mean, if I'm going to do an electronic score, I'll hire someone to help me do that because I'm not really all that crazy about doing the programming and things of that sort. I, I have done some and I've done scores that are combination scores. Uh, I did, I, I scored the miniseries In Cold Blood with Anthony, er Anthony Edwards and Eric Roberts. And that was an electronic score with a lot of uh, acoustic folk influences. So there was guitar, 12 string guitar, high strung guitar, dobro, mandolin, and it made sense for that kind of film. So it, in other words, the vocabulary of the film made sense to the story. So I get, I, again, a question that I, I'm thinking I know the answer, but when you, I mean, you must have to be good at what you do. Does that mean that you have to have this wide skill set of understanding all the different instruments or i mean can you be a composer and just be someone who plays piano or do you have to be fluent in all the different um instruments well it's it's actually an interesting question i mean i think that the that the definition of a film composer has changed over the last 20 or 30 years it used to be that most of the people who were coming into film music were educated, you know, music composers who had studied theory and studied orchestration and studied harmony. And electronics has now made it, you know, people who have wonderful musical ideas to put them down electronically 
with basically, you know, hopefully they have great ears and sometimes they do. I mean, you know, do I care if the Beatles know how to read music? No. Do I care if Simon, Paul Simon does? No. You know, so there's this, the, the actual writing of music does not require an education. However, if what you're trying to do is get that, get that music in front of 90 musicians so that they can perform it, then that's, that's an education that's required. And so a lot of people, um, in fact, you know, for a number of years, um, I did and other people that I know do, you know, they'll they'll work with a composer who might be getting an opportunity to work in the field because of his great work as a as a pop or a rock artist. And so they want to hire that person to get that sound, but then that person has to hire someone who's an orchestrator who's educated in how how to convert that stuff to notation for an orchestra to perform it. So it's kind of changed over the years what it is. I mean, you know, there are composers out there who are doing great work, uh, who don't know how to read a note of music, um, but then there are guys you know, who are orchestrating and conducting for them. And so the job kind of became a little narrower in terms of uh, you know what? What it is that the composer does? Because that never used to be the case. It used to be that you know that that the film composer was somebody who could orchestrate, that could conduct. I mean, there are a lot of composers who conduct their own music, like Jerry Goldsmith does. I'm uh, sorry, Jerry Goldsmith did. John Williams does. But then there's composers who don't. Danny Elfman doesn't conduct his own music, so that doesn't make him any less a composer. I understand. So you've seen a lot of talent. I mean, you've been around a lot of talent. Your exposure to LA. I guess, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports guy that I grew up and that was my life playing different sports. And you, I was always like looking for what that unique, um, uh, what somebody had that nobody else had in terms of what separated them. Uh, I guess in, in your world, when you're looking and you're educating at school and you, you come across a young composer or whatever, is there, is it a big variety of what makes someone really talented or is there, I mean, I, I guess the question is, what what makes a really good comp? I mean, I guess if it's all of the above, but you, I guess you'd have to feel it, hear it. You have to have vision. I mean, what are the things that you're looking for? Well, for me, I I, I really put a high value on good melodic writing, and so somebody that can write a strong melody. Uh, I mean, in in the program that I teach, we actually we do do assignments on how to create better quality melodic content for their mute for their films. I mean, the reality is that, you know, people don't walk around singing the textures of a, of a film score. You know, if I said Indiana Jones to you, you wouldn't go around singing bum, 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 bum. You sing the dun, da, 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 dun, da, da. It's the melodic content that people recognize. And so to me, you know, music without melodic content is very faceless. It doesn't have much identity and it could be great for a film score. I mean, sometimes sometimes a low undulating drone is exactly what the film needs, but I don't think that you're gonna sit and listen to a soundtrack album of that, you know? And I think, you know, for me, good film music is great. You know, great film music is great music that meets all the dramatic and technical requirements of the film. And that doesn't mean that you can't write scores that meet all the technical and dramatic requirements of the film that aren't good music. You know, I think that there are, that there are examples of that too. But you know, when I'm the people that I really look up to, the you know John Williams, and Jerry Goldsmith, the Alan Silvestri, the you know, and even Danny Elfman. I mean, Danny Elfman's a great melodic composer. You know, so there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of talent out there. Um, but then there's also you know people that just do what we call wallpapering a film, which is they can put a an undulating 
uh, an undulating drone happening, but it's not really identifiable from some of the some other person's undulating drone, you know. Yeah. I, I, what about Rachel Portman? Is do you consider her one of the? Yeah, she's uh, great. Yeah, Chocolat and stuff. She she did some amazing stuff. Benny and June is a great score that she wrote. No, there's there are some you know there's more and more women starting to break in these days, which is great. Yeah, and the reason I brought her up, I mean. We have, you know, we're going to have an audience of all ages, right? Even old people like me, (laughs) but like, you know, this is, I guess I wanted to open up the door a little bit and have a conversation about the opportunities. And, you know, sometimes with my guests, I talk about AI and, and how that might change the industry, but like for somebody that's younger, that's passionate, that has the fire and the, maybe the skill set. what does the landscape look like for opportunities? I mean, you've referenced the business changing. I don't really know what that may, I mean, changing in terms of how they do things with technology, mm-hmm. but if, is it an attractive career right now or is it a limited career? It's, I think it's a very attractive career. And, you know, I, it, the way I could give you a parallel is, you know, if you wanted to become a rock star, uh, you know, not everybody becomes a big rock star. And so, you, you know, that you're putting all, all of your skills in that hat. Whereas if you're like a guitarist and you you have the capability of playing a bunch of different styles and you become a studio player, you may not become a rock star, but you'll definitely be a working professional. You know, so when we're training students, I mean, I'd like nothing more than all of our student graduates to come out and get a major motion picture. But the chances of that are, you know, not not very high. That may happen eventually. And in fact, some of our students are starting to, some of our graduates are getting into higher levels of working in Hollywood. Um, But, you know, we wanna make sure that they can fill all these secondary functions so that they can actually make a living. You know, I, I kind of, when I'm talking about this in the classes, I talk about the fact that there's two paths. One path is how to make a living doing this stuff, and the other path is to follow your dream. And if you're very, if you if you're good and you're patient and you keep working towards the goal of your dream, those two become the same. So, uh, for instance, I worked as an orchestrator and orchestrated on many many motion pictures in Hollywood, many TV shows, and but I always wanted to be a composer. And eventually, I I got got to the point where I was thought of as a composer, and that's what I you know my my main you know, um, my main impression that I hope to make to people is that I'm a composer and that's that's what I've done. Some people still think of me as being one of the, you know, a, a great orchestrator because I worked on a lot of major motion pictures, City Slickers, Adams Family, A Few Good Men. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very big list of top high level pictures. But, you know, Robin Hood, Men and Tides, Dracula, Den of Loving It, Year of the Comet, uh, Thomas and the Magic Railroad, the automat. I mean, I have a, you know, maybe those pictures were not as big as, as some of the ones that I worked as an orchestrator, but I'm still considered a composer at this point. And so you can, we will, we want to train people to be able to fulfill both of those roles that they can, that they can make a good living working as an orchestrator, a conductor, an assistant to a composer, an assistant composer that's actually doing writing uh, versus the guy whose name is on the up front. I mean, um, it's not uncommon that you go to the movies and there'll be one person's name in the front of the movie, but that at the end, during the end credits in the back, it says additional composition by, and there's, you know, four or five names. And a lot of that has to do with, 
you know, the schedules in Hollywood that that they they squeeze the amount of time that somebody gets to work on something. And sometimes, you know, somebody will hire someone who is a specialist in a certain genre of music that they're not that familiar with. So, for instance, let's say the big element of the score is jazz big band. Well, not everybody has that capability or knows how to do that. But you can hire orchestrators who do know how to do that and you can work with them to create the great scores. Just curious, did you like La La Land? It's a loaded question. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. I, maybe I shouldn't ask that. I just I, to me to to me it didn't feel like everybody called it a jazz score, but it wasn't really a jazz score. Yeah, that was the only argument that I had against it. I mean, I think that the songs were very lovely and the, yeah. the you know, dance numbers and everything, but it didn't feel like jazz. And yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just was curious because I don't like I don't listen to jazz, but I kind of like that the music and I'm like, is this really jazz? Uh, and it didn't, right. I don't know. I didn't feel like it. Right. Well, that, I think that that was, that's what I didn't like about it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm curious. So like, I know it varies, Hummy, as far as a project, but I'm, I'm just trying to get my ar- arms around, like, what does it look like from start to finish? Like, I'm curious about timeline, like, and again, I'm sure it can average based on the score that you're working on, like your days, your mornings, your nights. Like, are you the kind of guy that will go all night and get it done in a week or does this take months? I mean, walk us through like what it looks like behind the scenes to be a composer on a movie score. OK, but we're talking about you've already got the gig and now you're actually working on the project. OK, well, let's yeah. talk about. real. Yeah, let's talk about getting the gig. I guess I'm curious, is that a a long dating process or is that sometimes we want you we're ready to go next week or is could it take years uh well you know it depends if it's a director i've worked with before they sometimes want to get me scheduled into the production to the post-production before they even start shooting the film um sometimes i'm i'm signed to do a project and the actual project doesn't doesn't need my services for a couple of months uh typically Typically, composers aren't involved in the beginning unless there's pre-records or there's production numbers in the in the show. Like in La La Land, they had to pre-record all of those songs, and then you know they had they need special tracks in order to actually shoot them. But typically, the post-production is when you're getting involved after they put together the film and they've got a basic edit of it. Um, the first step for me is to watch the film a number of times and try to suss out how I'm going to put the director's vision into musical terms and that means the genre of the of the score is an electronic score is an acoustic score is an ethnic flavored score is it a you know bluegrass score is it a rock score is it a jazz score you know what kind of score is going to reflect the the director's um vision that he's put in into the visuals of the, of the film so i work on that and then try to present some ideas to the director to see what they respond to because my, i feel that my job is creating the score, but I have to do it through the lens of the director. You know, the director has to see that that's working for his vision or her her vision of the film. So the first thing that I do is I try to come up with what I call the vocabulary of the score, which is the instrumentation, the type of harmonic language. uh, It's all, all of the element, musical elements of the film. And then once I get an approval of the concept, then the next thing I do is I analyze the film for how many themes are going to be needed and what, dramatic um dr- dramatic variations of the theme so you might have a character i'll give a real simple example who who is a uh, um 
who's a politician. And during the day, he's out there doing the political speeches and stump speeches and stuff. But at night, he's a he's a uh, he 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 feels that he, he keeps he does his job of keeping the city clean by going out and and killing mobs, killing people. You know, getting getting rid of the riffraff. Well, it's the same character, it's the same person, but they're two completely different dramatic contexts to his theme. So I would like to make a theme that works both in the you know political landscape, but also work as the you know as the the you know the behind the, the in the dark killer. So it's the idea of like having writing themes that are going to be malleable enough in the style that or the genre of the film that I'm talking about. You know, that are going to be malleable enough to be able to work in two different ways so i did a, i did a mini series about pt barnum and it was about the life and times of pt barnum and as part of my research i tried to figure out what was going on in music at the time of pt barnum's life and it turns out that he lived around the same period of time as uh, stephen foster who wrote a lot of you know um i dream of genie with the dark brown hair i think is one of his songs but his old americans songs. So I did analysis of what kind of harmony was used, what kind of melodic content was used, and then I incorporated into the score to make the score fit the genre, the, the time period that they shot in. So it kind of worked in the same time period. And then P.T. Barnum had triumphant days. He had days when he was playful, when he was playing with his kids. He had days that were, you know, where at the end of the movie, he passes away. So I had to do all these different dramatic variations of his theme in order to follow his the, 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 his life, his, his story. Yeah, I mean, this has blown me away because there's obviously I knew I was going to be lost a little, like all the stuff that I didn't know. But it's not just sitting down and here's the music. It's really getting into everything and the research and the timing and the era. Um, sure. So, uh, and by the way, you said Foster. Was he? The, did you say he was a composer? Yeah, Stephen Foster. Yeah, was he, he was a songwriter. Did he? Okay, there was a movie called Stealing Home. Um, Mark Harmon. I, I thought Foster was the one who did that. It was an old movie that I loved. Music was amazing, but don't, don't know. Okay, so once you okay. okay, so interesting. So I one question, and then I want to get to the one I ask about. Okay, now post production, you sit down or go home, go to, a, are you going home to a studio or do you go somewhere away from your home? Like, give me some color around what that looks like when you, you've done the research and you've gotten buy off and now you're going to do your thing. Now you start, now you start, you, you basically meet with the director and do what's called a spotting session where you decide where the music's going to go and what the music is going to do, you know, uh, so, you know, is the music supposed to make people feel happier? Is it supposed to give more excitement? Is it supposed to be make people feel more scared? All of those things, you know, as a film composer, you kind of learn how to musically push buttons to to help in, uh, you know, to help the experience that, that that people are having. You know, spooky music can make a scene way more spooky, you know, or, you know, music with, you know, uh, angular music can make people feel very much more at ease. I mean, there's, there's, there's there are a couple of, you know, there's techniques to doing this stuff and composers are always looking for new ways of doing those things. Um, and then you start working from the beginning. I, I like to work from the beginning of the movie, go to the end of the movie, uh, working on each individual cue. And at, the way it's done these days is that, um, you know, 
you write the cue, you mock it up electronically so that the director can hear it. It used to be in the good old days, you would just sit down at the piano, play the director the theme, and then meet him at the recording session. In fact, but I, I think about one of the first films that I did a long time ago, Year of the Comet, where I remember presenting my themes to the director and him turning to me and saying, okay, I got to go to London for six weeks. I'll see you at the recording session. And I went, oh my God, I'm being left completely alone to write this score. I'm not going to have to get any approvals or anything. And everybody loved the score. You know, so there was a lot more trust. And, and I, I don't want to say that as a negative way. I mean, we didn't have the capability of doing mock-ups the way that we do these days. I mean, everybody has, you know, a studio. You're looking at my studio right behind me. It's It's shrunk over the last number of years. This is a MIDI-capable piano that controls a secondary computer that uh, has all my sounds on it. Uh, I use Digital Performer as my, my uh, digital audio workstation. So I can mock things up to play for directors. And then you just create a file and send it through the internet and director can check, you know, can decide if they like it or make comments from wherever they work. That that never used to be part of the process when I first started. It was it became more and more part of the process as technology got better and better. And a, a lot of a lot of composers incorporate electronics into their scores. So they'll they'll have, you know, it basically expands their sound palette. You know, they can have electronic sounds as part of their sound palette, but it also can be used to reinforce a, an orchestra. So you might have a string section, but you don't think it sounds big enough, you can add electronic samples of strings. So there's a lot more capabilities that's now available than it used to be 30 years ago. So question, you, I just want to make sure I'm following you. Like, I love Blade Runner. Like, that's, when you say electronics, are would you, is that a, a movie yeah, that... That's an electronically realized score. Okay. So, and I've I've done some of those, but my preference is to do acoustic or orchestral scores. Okay. And then when I finish this and tell tell my wife about this podcast, when I'm talking about like cinema parody, so the mission, dances with, with wolves, uh, Rudy. So what what is that like? That that's the stuff that I love. What what yeah. do I? How would you phrase that in your world or terminology? Those are acoustic orchestral scores. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, they don't. They. I think. I don't think that any of the scores you just listed. Uh, there might have been some electronic percussion in uh, in in uh, Dances with Wolves, um, but typically, like Rudy was fully acoustic, as far as I know, it was just a live string section, and and you really can't. I mean, the thing that's interesting about the the what's been going on in the industry is that. What is easy to do on electronics uh, really limits what people write for for live musicians. So, for instance, you know, writing for strings, really writing for strings, uh, doesn't work as well electronically because it's hard to get the nuances that a real string section can get. So, people, there's a lot of scores you'll hear that just have string pads or just sustained strings and a lot of percussion. Because percussion is easy to do electronically, but but busy moving strings. I mean, I challenge my students all the time. The, the score that I wrote for Robin Hood Men in Tights would be impossible to sell doing mock-ups because it's really hard to mock that stuff up, you know. And and by the way, you can. I always challenge musicians about this all the time. It's like. 
go and take your favorite, you know, Tchaikovsky piece or Mozart or Beethoven piece, mock it up and make it sound as good as the as the acoustic version. It's almost impossible to do because the way you write for electronics is very different than the way you write for live musicians. And one of the things that happens is that people will get an oboe sound, for instance, but because they're playing it at a keyboard, they're actually playing a keyboard playable part with an oboe sound. And so sometimes they'll write things that are just really awkward on an oboe, hmm. but are easy to play because their keyboard is performing it. By the way, is that the song Gabriel's oboe in the mission? Is that actually an oboe or is that a, I thought that was a flute. No, that's an actual oboe. Okay. That's a beautiful, yeah, beautiful. Tom, Tom Boyd was the, was the, uh, was the oboist on that. And ah, that's amazing. Well, I, oh, it's amazing. I, um, I have all the songs I'm going to play for when I pass, you know, I mean, I've got it all laid out. Uh, I know it's a little morbid, but I, I tell you, I mean, I mean, I, I know I'm speaking to the man, but no pun intended, but I mean, right. I music and movies makes it for me. Like I love movies. I could watch, but the music uh, can just take it to a level that I don't know. It's just, it's like a language of love or whatever that just speaks to me. So mm -hmm. I, I know we were limited in time. And as we wind this down, I'm really curious. There's, I guess, one question that's coming up in my mind, and I don't know how to phrase it, but I'm curious when I interview people who are creative, you know, versus say just pure like accountants or businessmen or whatever. And I'm sure you are a businessman. Um, the creativity and then having to bend the knee. I, I guess I'm curious about the politics of your world because I would assume that you have strong opinions on your music and your, your art. Um, how often do you encounter situations to where, you know, um, they want you to do something and you just don't agree. And I don't know, is that happen often or do you guys seem to work it out? I, I've been very fortunate. I haven't had that happen much. I mean, it's, I, I can't say that I've never been fired off of a film uh, because, you know, but in, in one case, the director was so madly in love with the temp score that he lived with that there, no, nothing was going to make him happier than imitating the temp score. And, uh, you know, so sometimes, you know, directors really do a disservice to their film because they've lived with a temp score for six months and then they bring in the composer and they just say, I just wanted you to write this sideways. I mean, I think that I think the uh, that the quote from that director was, I don't think that this movie needs any themes because it's working so well without them. Like he's not realizing how much better it could be with thematic material and with, you know, unifying themes. I mean, it's it's just a lack of understanding of what music can bring to the party. And I've worked with a lot of directors who, you know, basically their favorite part of the whole process is going to the recording session because then they get to see this thing come to life in a completely different way, you know? And uh, it, I, I've considered myself very lucky to have worked with directors like that. That's great. Uh, I am curious, you know, briefly, not to get too personal, but I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm like, I'm wondering what kind of guy Hami was like, were you a, a kid growing up that loved music? Like, was that your life or was this, you, I mean, did you have a different kind of career? And then one day you just woke up and said, Hey, I'm going to follow my passion. But like, was this something that was born in high school, college? I mean, it was way before then. I mean, I started playing guitar and it was, I think guitar was my third or fourth instrument when I was like seven years old. And by the time I was 13, I was playing in pit orchestras for musicals and 
doing my first record. I think I did my first professional recording session at 13 or 14. And, uh, you know, I had always wanted to do music. Of course, my parents were concerned that, that, you know, being a musician wasn't a good, wasn't a good living. So I did one year of electrical engineering at McGill University. And my father recognized that I was kind of not spending any time doing music where I used to spend a lot of time doing music. And he basically said, well, if you apply to music school and you get in, I'll send you. And uh, I got accepted to Berklee College of Music, which at that time, I'm being truth be told, was not a difficult school to get into. It was more a difficult school to graduate from. So my incoming class was 1,500 students, and my graduating class was 120. So it was like 10, you know, 10% of what, what started. Uh, so I consider myself very lucky that I got to go to Berklee College of Music, and I, uh, I, you know, was very fortunate to um, meet people in, in Los Angeles who were years before me had gone to Berkeley and they were forming their careers. And I started working for them as orchestrators and conducting or a lot of did a lot of orchestration in the early years and then started working with a variety of composers where I would also conduct their scores. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what I'm trying to do, Hummy, is have people kind of look in the mirror and kind of feel like what energizes them? Like what are they different from other, what were they born in, in this world? And, you know, in listening to you just now, you obviously from a young age kind of knew what it was you wanted to do. And um, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm jealous. I, I think a lot of people struggle and I think a lot of people kind of go down roads that maybe aren't in alignment with who they really are. So I think that's really great. I, uh, I'm curious if, if let's just say you couldn't be a composer uh, it, it, like, is there a, is there a dream job or are you in it? Like, is there something, let's just say this chapter of your life ended and you had to pick something else? Is there just, um, and I ask this question because I'm always curious, it might give a little more insight to who you are and, you know, whether it's a sports broadcaster or a priest or whatever, is there something else that you could see yourself doing or are you all in on this? I'm pretty much all in on this. I mean, I I, I would say that that uh, you know, I, I even from an early age. I mean, even when I was a kid in high school, I was the other the other part of my life has always been education. I mean, I used to give private guitar lessons when I was at Berkeley College of Music. I was you know earning some money on the side by giving guitar lessons, and. Uh, you know, currently I'm I'm now a I guess for for lack of a better term a professor at the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program, and uh, so I get a lot of joy now out of out of uh, nurturing and mentoring up and coming students to see them, and it's very exciting to see them having this the success that our students are having. I mean, we're very fortunate that uh, that um, you know I created a program that has really done a good job of preparing people for the industry. We've gotten feedback from professionals in Hollywood saying that they feel that the graduates of my program are some of the best prepared students of any other graduate programs in the country. So, you know, and 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 a lot of our students are actually working, making a living either as assistant composers, as orchestrators, as conductors. Uh, a couple of our students have been signed to, uh, they have staff uh, senior composer positions at video game you know, video game companies, um, people are doing concert works. It's, it's all over the map. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that this is the easiest career path in the world, but if you have a passion for it, if this is really what you need to do, 
and then there are ways of making it work. And I'm and I'm very pleased in the fact that I'm that I'm one of the people that's able to help people realize that. Yeah, no, I mean, you get to create the art, but then you get to help people kind of realize their dream as well. So you get kind of the best of both worlds. On ending, I guess I have two quick questions. One is, I know you've done a lot. Uh, I'm curious what you're most proud of as far as a score that you've done, uh, if you had to pick one, and then uh, maybe a favorite film score that's not yours that, you know, on a Saturday night, you know, if you're having a glass of wine that you might listen to. Um, is that an easy question to answer? Uh, one of my favorite scores, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I could make it just one score, but certainly the, you actually mentioned it as Cinema Paradiso. I mean, I, I've, I've worn out that CD probably, <laughs> you know, if you if there is such a thing as wearing out CDs. Uh, I listened to that constantly. When it first came out, I just like was blown away by by the mastery of Ennio Morricone. Um, uh, as far as... Uh, the other question, uh, let me see, I'm trying to think of what, how to answer it. Um, I, let me, let me say it this way. Maybe like, I know you've done a variety and a lot of, but one where you ended in, and you actually not, you know, in a humble way, you're just like, wow. I mean, I'm really proud of myself. That one was really good. You know, that's like trying to identify your favorite child being going on. <laughs> I think it's pretty difficult. It's always nice when other people recognize you. And I think that that has an effect. I mean, uh, you, you know, one one year uh, I got contacted by this guy on Facebook who told me he was using one of my scores to teach in his composition classes. And when I did some research on this guy, I mean, I wrote him back and I said, well, gee, I'm really thank you. What score? And he said, well, it was the main title from Dracula that I'm loving it. And, uh, you know, when I looked up this guy's credentials, he's like a Pulitzer Prize nominated composer. So when somebody of that level or or, you know, when when Jerry Goldsmith told told uh, the agent that we shared that he was really impressed with my work on Robin Hood Men in Tights, when somebody of that stature, somebody who you've considered one of your, you know, gods, you know, looks down upon you and says you got the goods kid you know that that certainly has an effect on on how you how you see things or you know winning an emmy award for language of the heart you know things of that sort i mean that i don't know that you that i go into any project going oh this isn't going to be much of a score you know (laughs) or or this is going to be the score that's going to make my mark you know you, you don't know. I mean, certainly when I was nominated for the Critics' Choice Award for the Automat, that came out of completely out of left field. I mean, the director was the one that put me in for the nomination. And uh, I was in New York visiting my daughter. And the day that we arrived, the nominations came out. And I get an email saying, hey, you got nominated for an award. <laughs> I went, oh, my God, what are you kidding me? So, you know, yeah. I, I like to think that I that I put out a a high level product and people obviously like my work. I mean, there's in a couple of weeks, there's going to be a, a, a concert um, here in Seattle by the Seattle um, collaborative orchestra. They're doing an, an, an evening of my film music. They're going to perform a whole night of my film scores. So that's very exciting. That's in a couple of weeks. Yep. All right. Uh, is it still available or is yeah, it still on May, May 16th? And it's uh, they can go to the Seattle Collaborative Orchestra website, and uh, yeah, it's, it's right on. Very exciting night. Maybe I'll take my wife. That sounds exciting. Um, in ending, is there anything I didn't ask? I mean, the name you know the name of the game on this is to educate, and 
fill in the color and kind of the lifestyle. Is there anything that's on the tip of your tongue that I, I should have asked that you want to say to the audience? I think that one of the most, the, the, one of the hardest things for all of our graduates and a lot of people is, you know, the difficulty of going out and selling oneself. And we actually cover this in the program in the, in the master's program that I teach. We give you some, you know, ways of doing it. Um, if you're not an outgoing person, it's going to be a very difficult career path because you have to be able to go out there and press the flesh with people and meet people and, you know, without being annoying, kind of get, get an opportunity to get your music in front of them. And that seems to be the thing that, that holds back people more than their skill set. You know, there's people who are great schmoozers who don't have the skill set that my graduates are doing and they end up hiring my graduates to help them do their scores. You know, uh, again, that's just part of the skill set that's, that's uh, unfortunately left out of a lot of educational programs is how to go out there and sell yourself and make that work. And that's, you know, if, if you're really a shy person, start working on that now, even before you get yourself into training for film music, you know, it's, 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 it's part of the game. It, there's, it's for most people, the cold calling and the meetings and stuff are, are the most uncomfortable parts of the pro process. Um, but you need to do them. And, uh, and, and the sooner you kind of start getting, building that muscle, the better. You know, I'm really glad I asked that because that shocks me. I, I would think that you could be a total introvert if you wanted to be and be very effective. But the fact that you have to be likable and social and sell yourself isn't something that I thought would be really an important part of the uh, success. But that's that's really interesting. You said that. Yep. Um, well, thank you, Hami. You're you're really generous. Uh, I I really love this listening to you and. Uh, I'm going to come see you on the 16th, but you were amazing. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Eric, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thank you.